Thumbs off. Yeah, I mean, we, we did update the internet. So your phone should be working better now, but maybe it's, I don't know. So that's okay. Um, so how about we start in 2 Timothy 6? It's actually 1 Timothy. There's not six chapters. Sorry. That's a typo. Uh, the, the PowerPoint is not the inspired word of God. Uh, 1 Timothy 6. I want to read two verses. We're going to come back to it. So if, if you want to go ahead, uh, after we read this, we'll be in Acts 8. Uh, briefly, I'm really not, I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. Um, but First Timothy six. This is Paul concluding his letter. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Is your word knowledge in quotations? No. Uh, what do y'all have? New King James, NIV. That's uh, so New King James, NIV, not ESV. ESV. Yeah, it's. Quotations? Okay. Uh, Holman, is it in quotations? Yes. Yes? Okay. Danny, what do you got? It's not in quotations. Okay. I have Okay. Oh, that's, that's interesting. So, so, falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, so the it, the antecedent is knowledge, by professing knowledge, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. So that is a weird way to end an epistle, right? Maybe some of you have been reading through the New Testament. You're at the end of First Timothy. You're like, what do I care? I'm not going to be a preacher. So what do I care about by these books? And then you read the end of it, and you're like, okay. <laughs> well, there's nothing there for me. Well, um, actually, I think it is the key verse for what it is that we are looking at here. We're going to look at an ancient Christian heresy. And in my goal, we'll look at four or five of these. I think we can finish it today. We may not, so we'll, we'll see how far, far we get. Um, but I want to look at not just Mormonism as a heresy. We, we've done that. I want to look at uh, root heresies, the ones that just do not go away. You've probably never heard of Gnosticism. It's not a term you're, you're going to talk about much in vacation Bible school. Uh, but I believe that Gnosticism is the most prevalent religion in the world today. In fact, I think there are two religions in the world. One, let's call them the Judaizers, to use a New Testament term. This is a more legalistic religion where uh, everything is about following the rules. I think woke religion is going that direction. Uh, it certainly is trying to. Um, that, and that if you don't say the slogans, uh, buy into the arguments, and do everything the right way, you're outside the camp. It's, it's very much of a Judaizer sort of thing, where if you're, if you're not circumcised, you're not welcome here. If, if you don't have a sign in your front yard or a bumper sticker on your car that tells everyone your, 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 your feelings about this and that, then, then you're outside the camp. Um, and we can think of other examples there. Um, so there's Judaizers, and then there is Gnosticism. And I think we are at a Gnostic stage. A good chance many of us grew up in a more legalistic world. I certainly did. And I've given you examples of that in the past. That is certainly changing to, to more of a Gnostic world. So, uh, so what I want to do is look at three basic premises of Gnosticism. And through it, we'll, we'll, give, we'll give the history of it and, and whatnot. It, the early Gnosticism shows up in the New Testament, so we'll, we'll talk about them whenever, whenever we, we get there. The first thing you need to know about Gnosticism is syncretism. Syncretism. That is to say that what Gnosticism is is it starts with Greek philosophy, or this is the context of a Greco-Roman world, 
It starts with cultural assumptions and then comes to Christianity. Okay? So, so that, that's very important to grasp. You, you, start with, um, you start with the world and then you come to the faith. Right? Um, and so in order to understand Gnosticism, you have to understand the worldview of Greek thought. So now, right there, does, does any of this sound like it's prevalent to what it is we're seeing today? Right? So if, if you were to say, uh, if someone were to say, I believe X, you would say, well, that's fine. It contradicts the Bible. Well, yeah, but I still believe X. You're like, well, where did you get X? Well, you grew up in a world where that was assumed, whatever it, it might be. You know, nowadays it would be sexual ethics, for example. That, that is presumed, right? Well, um, um, same thing with Gnosticism. You start with Greek thought and you move into a biblical uh, Christianity. So theological liberalism has done that from the very beginning. Uh, German theological liberalism started with uh, the world doesn't believe in miracles. Therefore, we should chuck miracles, right? Well, it, it's, it's hard to do that uh, whenever the resurrection is the miracle, not to mention creation and stuff like that. Um, and so what you get is pop philosophy mixed with, with Christianity. Uh, now, according to the early church... The first Gnostic, now I don't think this is true, but the first Gnostic is found in the Bible. His name is Simon. Go to Acts 8. We'll come back to, to 1 Timothy there. Uh, but Go to Acts 8. We'll meet him. Now, we're going on what the early church tells us. But I thought we'd read his story. Acts 8. This is Simon the, the magician. Remember his story? We'll just read it, and we're not going to make a lot of comment, but uh, you read the early church guys, and they'll say, look, this, this is the guy uh, where, where it all went wrong. Uh, of course, the philosophy was already there. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city, amazed people of Samaria, saying uh, that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. They paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed, Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. When Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs of great miracles performed, and he was amazed. Now, you remember how the rest of the story goes, right? He sees these miracles, and he goes, you have power that I don't have. I want that power. Give me that power. And they weren't too happy about that, right? Um, and so, verse 20 uh, Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness, what an interesting phrase, and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And the early church writers, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Justin Martyr, some of these, they'll say this guy ends up becoming an early um, Gnostic teacher. Let me give you another name, uh, Nicholas, not St. Nicholas, the guy that put coal in people's stocking in the middle of the night um, and punched Arius in the face, according to one tradition. But um, Nicholas the deacon, in Revelation, we've talked about this in our study of the seven letters, there's a Nicholas, the Nicolaitans, you do not commit the sins of the Nicolaitans. And one theory is Nicholas the deacon starts his own little movement called the Nicolaitans. And they were an early Gnostic sect. 
I don't know if that's true or not, but that is a, a prominent, certainly the, the indulgent aspect of the Nicolaitans is, is, is there. Um, but what you need to see is, is you're going to start with Greek thought, and you're going to sprinkle Christianity with it. This is the problem with the Christian church today. The reality is the majority of people in our pews are more American than they are Christian. And this has been the case for a long, long time. So we, we come with certain assumptions, and it's hard for us to, to get out of our culture. But you and I are being discipled every day, especially in a high-tech, socialized world. From, from the pictures we look at on Instagram to the videos we may watch on, on, on TikTok to the 280 characters on Twitter to, to the news shared on Facebook. We are being discipled to think a certain way, and then we get an hour a week to spring Jesus, Jesus on top of it. By the way, that is the number one problem with youth ministry. Youth pastors are expected to fix young people, not parents. And young people are influenced by a, a worldview of school, no matter their context, private, public, or home. And then the youth pastor gets 20 minutes after sticky games to fix it all. Doesn't work. Never has worked, right? Um, well, that's syncretism. I don't spend forever in that. The other is self-discovery. Here's the question of, here you go, James, epistemology is the philosophical question of how do we know? How do we know anything? Ourselves, the world, whatever it is. Well, Christians respond by looking at two things, okay? We, we respond by looking at general revelation, right? Um, that would be creation and conscience, for, for example, um, um, and, uh, uh, and then the other, of course, is special revelation, right? We open up the Bible, and God says, don't do this, therefore we don't do it, right? Special revelation also be Jesus, being that it is God's word made evident in flesh, right? This is, this is how the Christian answers. So, how do, so I'm teaching ethics. How do we know what is right and wrong in ethics? Well, I start with Bible, okay? Others start in other places. That's how we know. It's how I know who I am. It's how I know uh, purpose, meaning, uh, right, wrong, justice, injustice, God, you know, those things, right? Well, Gnosticism, they have the Bible. They believe the Bible. We'll, we'll look at that in some detail. But they would say, actually, the way I know is found within. Isn't this sound familiar yet? We haven't even gotten to the good stuff. It's self-discovery. That word Gnostic is a weird word to you and I. The Greek word, it comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means to know. So to them, salvation, so at its essence is epistemological heresy, James. Um, but to them, knowledge leads to salvation. You can't be saved unless you are enlightened. Okay? So it begins with something simple. Okay? You got Jesus. Right? He's got 12 disciples. Why only 12? What about everyone else? Well, these 12, they get the secret knowledge, don't they? And within that 12, you, you got an inner three. Right? Remember, Jesus like, just between us girls, right? Let me tell you something's really going on. Okay? Well, then, you, then, then if you read, uh, so, so they're like super enlightened. Then if you read the Gnostic Gospels, take, for example, the Gospel according to Judas, Maybe you remember seeing this in the news. You remember the story? The story goes that Jesus pulls Judas aside. He said, Judas, here's the thing. I need your help. 
I've got this whole plan figured out, but I need you to hand me over to religious elites because they're incompetent. Okay? Now, you need to know that what you're going to do is a good thing, but people are not going to like it. Okay? That's a secret knowledge that only Judas had. See how he's enlightened. He's to a super level of spirituality. And this is what it is you're seeing here in 1 Timothy 6. It's an embryonic version of it. Notice the language again. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions. This is where you're going to get the Gnostic Gospels and the Infancy Gospel of Thomas and the Infancy Gospel of them and the Gospel according to Mary and the secret Gospel of Jesus turning the, the children into goats. We, we've looked at some of these before. And notice they, say, they falsely call it knowledge, Gnosis. For by professing it, knowledge, some have swerved from the faith. Now, now, Gnosticism doesn't really blossom until the second and third century. It almost takes over Christianity. It almost succeeds. But we see it in embryonic form in the New Testament. I think this is the key verse for it. So you, you, do, you, you get all these writings. So, so now, if you read the, the infancy gospel of, of, of Thomas, right, you're going to read stories of Jesus taking uh, clay, and he turns them, he fashions them into birds, and they fly away, right? That's, that's a story you find in there. Now, the Infancy Gospel of Thomas is written about two to three hundred years after Jesus was an infant. So you've got to ask yourself, where did the writer, whoever the writer was, get this information? They got it because they were enlightened. They had reached a level of knowledge, and it is the job of the Gnosis, is the job of the enlightened one to then enlighten everyone else. This is why you have these writings. Now, did Jesus really do that? No, he didn't. Now, what bothers me is if you take history seriously and historical research, um, when people will trust the gospel of Philip because maybe Jesus kissed Mary Magdalene on the lips. It doesn't say that, but maybe he did, okay? Because we're missing you know, that part of the, the scroll. So, so we'll take that and say it's more true than the Gospels written within 30 years of, of the fact. Well, that's not how his, historical research is actually done. The closer to the original event, the likelihood of it being more reliable. That is why you and I are more reliable resources on telling 9-11 than my kids are. Right, Because we're, we were there. We're close resources to it, right? So primary resources are, are, are important. So you get eyewitness testimony in the Gospels, but then the culture, because of their motivation, they turn to the Gnostic Gospels two, three hundred years after the fact. And they get, I mean, I, when I say that they're strange, they are really strange. And the secret Gospel of Mark, notice it's a secret Gospel. Only the, the, the select few get it. The, um, there's, there's a scene, you know, about, about, you know, all this, Jesus gives this enlightenment message. Well, after Jesus is risen from the dead, uh, the cross itself is raised from the dead. And the cross itself ascends into the heavens. You, you won't see that on the Discovery Channel. They don't mention that on Easter morning on uh, Good Morning America, right? They, they, they forget that part. You'll, you'll get all the other bogus stuff. Uh, but, but in them, and if we had time, we could go through, and I could show you, like in the Gospel of Thomas, for one, I think they're very sexist, um, where Jesus will say things like to Mary uh, and the other women, because uh, the disciples get jealous that Jesus has women disciples, uh, like all the Marys and, and all them. And Jesus will say to them, they must become like men, right? Well, you know, the, the feminists love the Gnostic Gospels. They just skip those parts, right? 
I mean, it's very clear that this very sexist document. You read the Gospels, you get the, you get the opposite. Who does Jesus come to first after the resurrection? It's women. Who in the court of law are not trustworthy in that culture. But, but because that's the way it happened. The, the people who don't run when Jesus needs them the most are the women, not the men. They're scared to death. Right? I mean, so, so, so the Gospels had a very high view of, of, of the disciples of, of Jesus. Well, let's think of how this shows up in, in a modern context, okay? Um, does this idea of self-discovery, if you, does that language sound familiar? It is everywhere. There is a book, it's based off uh, from the uh, Together for the Gospel, it was the first conference. Um, uh, Dr. Moeller preached a sermon called Preaching with the, with the Culture in View. It's probably one of the best sermons he ever gave. Um, and you can buy the book with the sermon in it. And in it, he lays out what sort of culture do we live in, okay? And, and tell me if you notice a pattern here. He starts with, well, the basic theme is there's no higher authority in America now or in the West than the self. He starts with uh, self-fulfillment, Quote, most Americans believe that life is something of a quest and that the self is something of a project. And in this project of self-fulfillment, they believe that what is most important in life is the ability to develop an exciting, exhilarating, satisfying, and secure sense of the self. They look for fulfillment primarily within the self. This is why the number one question we ask ourselves is, am I well? Am I happy? We don't ask, is this good? Am I righteous? We ask, am I happy? Am I fulfilled? Am I well? And so you see there how the psychology craze has taken over our identity. Right, because psychology doesn't care about what is true, it cares about how you feel. That's a big, big difference. You could be a miserable human being, but that's okay. What's the, uh, in Veggie Tales, the Jonah, uh, what's, what's the caterpillar? Um, um, my name is Kalel. My mother was a caterpillar. My father was a worm, but I'm okay with it now. Right? Is that the line? Has anyone ever watched the Jonah movie of Veggie Tales? Well, guess what you're going to do this week, right? Right? I, I always love quoting that. My father was a caterpillar. My mother was, because you see him listening to like psychological, uh, uh, you know, tapes. And, you know, he's like, you are a wonderful person. I am a wonderful person, he repeats, right? My father was a caterpillar. My mother was a worm, but I'm okay with that now, right? And well, that's self-fulfillment. That, that, that's what we want. Am I happy? Am I well? Secondly, self-sufficiency. Quote, we are the self-sufficient cause of all meaningness, uh, meaning and happiness. And furthermore, we are, of, we, are, we are our own self-sufficient authority as well. There is no external authority, there is no hierarchy, and there is no need for tradition or custom or manner. We can redefine ourselves, and we are sufficient to remake ourselves in any way we may see fit. Look, we've all been living long enough that I've certainly seen in my lifetime one area of authority after another has been tore down. Let me tell you where, where I noticed this, first of all. It was during the Obama administration. I'm not critical of President Obama here, at least. It was when the, the secret, the big story was the Secret Service was sta- staying up all night at bars and clubs and everything else, right? And there was all this corruption within. I remember thinking if there was one government entity that we held high as almost without error, it was the Secret Service. 
Like every little boy wants to grow up with the earpiece and the suit saving the president, right? I mean, we all do. Um, well, that story was presented as, see, you can't trust nobody. There's, there's, there's no hierarchy that, that you can trust. Now, every institution growing up, from the family to parents to schools to police to mayors and, and, and pastors and everyone else, you can't trust any of them. And if you don't believe me, let me give you a thousand stories of how terrible they are. Let's ignore the 10,000 stories of how awesome they are. Right? So, so what you have is a systematic destruction of authority and tradition, and what's left is me. The only person I can trust is me and my experience. Think about it. Right now in COVID, the big frustration we have left, right, and in the middle is there's authority figures saying this, there's authority figures saying this, and I don't know who to believe. And what happens is, is because my self-identity is over here, they must be wrong. Well, my self-identity is over here. They must be wrong. And that's the war. And what comes out of that is I'm just going to trust my own feelings. There's no one to trust more than me. Right? Now, you may be a bigot in the process, of course, if you disagree with me. But there's no one higher than, than the self. I can, I can make my own uh, decisions. Oh, and if I make those decisions, you may have to pay for it. But I can still make them. Self-definition. See, if this sounds familiar. Most Americans now believe we have the ability to define ourselves, Mueller writes. This is pushing the limits of autonomy. We will now define what it means to be human. This should be pretty self-explanatory. This explains the rapid rise of redefining everything. Gender, marriage, family, justice, happiness, love, freedom, hate. Right? Have you noticed that the word hate used to actually mean something? Uh, this is something that bothers me about the term white supremacy. Historically, that has a real meaning to it. What we've done now is because we've overused these other words. So you have to use a stronger word to make it fit a less strong word. White supremacy used, used to mean you didn't just have a, a white sheet in your closet. You wore it to bed at night. I mean, you were genuinely a white supremacist and an evil human being. Now that term has been lessened essentially, to mean something else. We can think of other examples. That's probably the most obvious one. But, but we get to redefine everything. C.S. Lewis is insightful here. I think this is mere Christianity. There is something which unites magic and applied science. I, I don't have time to, to go about his whole uh, philosophy of science. Uh, there's a great documentary uh, called... Um, uh, oh, The Magician's Twin is, is the uh, Narnia book. This is The Magician's something else. That's going to bother me. So there's something which unites magic, so that's the old world, and applied science, that's, that's the modern world, while separating both from the wisdom of the earlier ages. The wise men of old, the cardinal problem had been how to conform the soul to reality. Think about it. If, if my understanding of faith is you have a problem, I have a problem, we call it sin. And reality is the world in which God created. And this is how we do the, the three circles. Of, of every person we baptize goes through the three circles. Okay? And, and so my problem is me. I need to conform to the reality of the world. In spiritual sense, I need to put away sin and conform to the reality of God's world. Right? And, and everything else, if, if I'm having uh, delusions, right? I, I, a doctor will come and say, this isn't acceptable. We need to lead you to conform to to the world. If, 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 if I'm convinced that I should have one leg instead of two, 
The traditional idea was there's something wrong with you. You need to conform to reality. Okay? Doesn't mean we've always gotten it right, but that worldview was sitting there. Well, he goes, the solution had been knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue. Right? It's the world you grew up in. It's the world I grew up in. For magic and applied science alike, the problem, now think about what magic is. What you think is normal is not what's about to happen. Right? That's, that's why we love it. Because it messes with us like an M.C. Escher painting, isn't it? The problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of men. You see what he's saying there? It used to be that, that I need to conform to reality. Now, it's reality must conform to me. That's self-definition. Self now, how you define yourself may be false. I am a biological male and I feel female. But everyone must conform to my self-definition. Well, that, that doesn't work that way. Because if you're a female, identifies as male, uh, and you go to the hospital, you've got pains in your stomach. And the doctor doesn't ask, could you be pregnant? Why does he ask that question? Because he understands reality. Now, when he asks that question, if you identify as male, he is transphobic. So it isn't just that my identity, reality must conform to my identity, but everyone, reality itself must conform to, to my self-identity, even if it's contradictory. Right? Uh, so, for example, this is why you can get a dude, he's a guy, he's got testosterone levels higher than, than the female that he, he, he fights again. And, and the UFC fighter, well, I don't watch UFC, uh, beating a woman to, to, to almost to a bloody corpse, literally, thinking that somehow he's accomplished something. So even though someone becomes a victim of his self-definition, it's okay, reality has to conform to, to his way he thinks, she thinks, whatever. Fourthly, we've we got to move on. We're not going to get through all this. Self-absorption. Moeller again, quote, for in our self-absorption, we generally think everything is all about us. Anyone ever been on social media? Um, Y'all remember the, uh, the, the gymnast, my daughter loves this gymnast, who, 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 who didn't do half the Olympics? Simone Biles, yeah, you remember that? I remember that came out, I'm on the Twitter, forgive me. Um, and I was thinking, I'm supposed to have an opinion about this. I don't have an opinion about this. Wouldn't it be better if we lived a life where we didn't have to have an opinion about everything? That, that was like, talk about gnosis, right? That was enlightening to me, right? I mean, you remember the, the, the day and age when we thought, you know what? I do not have an opinion about, um, about international politics. You want to know why? I don't know anything about international politics. Them days are over with. We, we are so self-absorbed, we think my opinion not only matters, but is more true than yours. And, and we have to have an opinion about everything. We're so absorbed with ourselves. There's no one that makes us happier than, than ourselves. There's a, there's a joke that I've heard 10 preachers tell. Um, you know, if you're a guest speaker somewhere and the you know, guy introduces you, you know, uh, Brother Bob is a wonderful man. I've known him for years. Da, 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 da. And, and the, the Brother Bob gets up there and goes, well, let me just say that is the second best introduction I've ever received in my life. 
The first one was that one time they forgot to introduce me, so I had to do it myself, right? <laughs> and we all joke. We've heard it a thousand times. I've probably told it myself. But it makes sense in this world because there's no one we want to talk about more than ourselves. Can I give you the hint of counseling? Get them to talk about themselves and you're, you're there. And it's very easy to do. It's very easy to get people to talk about themselves. There's no one that we want to talk about more than ourselves. Even when we talk about our spouse and our kids, who are we really talking about? Me. Me. Oh, my wife, she, 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 she's beautiful. Let me tell you, I really picked a good one in her. <laughs> right? We love to talk about ourselves. No one more important. He goes on. Um, Self-absorption takes the place of believing that we can actually make the world come to terms with us. If we do not understand that this is the cultural bent of our society, we will not understand how to preach the gospel to people who think all reality will come to terms with them rather than that the individual has to come to terms with reality. It's the same thing we just talked about with, with Lewis. Take something like divorce. Let's say you just have a tragic situation with divorce. Try having this conversation, okay? Admitting that you were a victim of their sin. We all are. Whenever we're sinned against, we are a victim of their sin. In divorce... Try this. What role did you play in, in the, uh, the destruction of your marriage? What, do you, what, what sort of response do you think you're going to get? Self-reflection? No. Repentance? No. Yeah. Well, you're, you're, I, I didn't come here to be judged. I came here because I was wounded, and I thought Christians loved people, and I just feel really judged right now. I guess you're, 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 you're not who I thought you were. I've had these conversations. Like, well, what did you expect? You know, it's because of self-absorption. The problem is always someone else. Anyone ever watch the news? Well, self-transcendence. People are spiritual, but not religious. This is, I'm not quoting Muller here. For the simple reason that spirituality is vague enough that I can mold it to, to fit me. Religion, on the other hand, is too rigid to fit my definition. There's a great story I heard years ago by, by another pastor. He said uh, a young man came to his office one day. He said, Preacher, I, I believe in two things I've become convinced of. I said, okay. Predestination and reincarnation. And this guy, he's, he's not a Calvinist. He goes, okay, predestination. You know, we can talk about that. But reincarnation? Why in the world? What about the verse that says we die and then judgment? What about when Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise? What is the, just the general worldview of the Bible? You're, you live and you die, and that is it. You know, well, I just think it's true. That is spirituality, but not religion. Religion is too rigid. We had a guy here early on in, in, in our time here, and I think about him often. Uh, he, he came out of a, 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 a fundamentalist background, so he's real leery of creeds and confessions. And says, man, we're so glad to have you and your family here. I think his wife was excited about the church and everything, but, but he was really struggling with this. I said, look, I will be as transparent with you as I can. I will give you everything about us. We're not going to hide anything. This is who we are. And I gave him a, a copy of Baptist Faith and Message. I would love to sit down and sort of share with you what it is that we believe. I think you'll find it's faithful to Scripture. It's faithful to, to, to our convictions about secondary issues, right? And we're open on tertiary issues. If you don't believe the rapture, fine. If you believe the rapture, great. If you think that, oh, fine. 
fine, right? We can have those conversations. But I think you'll find it's not as rigid as what you grew up with. There's room for discipleship and growth for us to have a conversation. Never came back. I ran into him a few months after that. And, and we, we, got, we got along fine. It was that rigidness that he struggled with. And that's so many, many of our people. We want a faith that is moldable. And so when you walk in saying, yeah, but the Bible, that, that contradicts self-transcendence. I'll never forget the lady. I worked at a Christian bookstore for years. And it was when I was in Louisville. A lady comes in. She goes, do you all sell tarot cards? Now, I was a young pup, right? I was still in college, uh, maybe seminary. And, and like, it took me a while after she left to figure out what a tarot card was. But being that I worked in a Christian bookstore, no one had ever asked me that. But she sees that we are a spiritual, if, if I can use that term, business, and assumes we cater to everything. Like, no. Like, if I were to walk to a Catholic bookstore, I'm not looking for the Martin Luther bobblehead doll. So, too, if, if you come to family Christian stores, you shouldn't be looking for new age sort of, sort of weird stuff, right? And she was just, well, I just don't understand why y'all don't have it, right? We're like, we got Dayspring cards so you can send your loved ones, right? I don't, I don't, I don't know what, what, what you want from me. But that, that's sort of the, I get to define what is true. I get to define on, on, on what essence is and the divine and, and, and how, how it functions. And I can do it without consulting anyone that came before me who may have greater insight than me. Right? Self-enhancement is the sixth one. From plastic surgery to gender surgeries to, to genetic modification to embryonic stem cell research to aborted Down syndrome children to the abuse of technology. I, of course, I'm finishing my ethics class. Next week, the, the students have to present their, their, their topic. And I think one thing you find when you teach ethics is how crazy the world already is. We're already genetically modifying children. So think about it. If, if we're going to get to the point, we're not quite there yet, but we're going to get to a point where you got mom and dad here. We're going to create an embryo outside the womb. Um, and for whatever reason, it could be a, a mom and dad, could be uh, two guys who think they're dads, or because that's the Anderson Cooper surrogate. We talked about surrogacy here when we talked about Hagar. Um, but, and you'll say, you know what? Um, blue eyes. I really want blue eyes. And, and I want them to be athletic. You know, because I love sports growing up. I want them to be athletic. Can, can, can we make them uh, intelligent enough to, to not have to worry about school too much? Maybe get them to that Ivy League school because that, that would be really awesome. Okay? So I want blue eyes. I want them to be athletic, and I want them to be intelligent. Anything else you need? Well, hmm. Uh, I want them to, to – I need them to have something of, of their mother. Um, maybe uh, – I don't want them to like to shop. I mean that – you should have known that when I came in here, right? And you can do this game when we're getting to that point. That's self-enhancement. Think about how many things we, we do or we investigate and we, we do for, for not to make society better, but to make me better. Right? Self-enhancement. There's no one more important and higher authority than that. Finally, self-security. Should I just put the last 18 months up here and you'll get this last one? From childhood or childproof homes to childproof medicine bottles to warnings on coffee cups about how hot coffee can get to antibodies to MRIs to OSHA to bumpers on cars to seatbelts to a massive military complex. There is nothing more important to the American than to feel safe. 
even if the policy doesn't actually make you safe. Can I give you, can I give you an example without offending anyone here or who may hear this? You remember you go to Walmarts. Let's just say April, May of 2020, just to pick a random time period, okay? How many doors could you go in? One, why? To stop the spread of the virus. Now, the virus spreads by being close to people. If you're going in and out the same door, are you solving the problem? No, you're making it worse. Why did we do that? Yeah, that, that's really it. You're, you're right. That is really it. Now, you could put a guy over there who's counting who leaves. Look, I get it. You go in, you go out. That makes sense. You know, I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to be that guy. And I, I've been careful with the COVID talk. I'm sure you guys know this. Um, but I'm not going to be for the next five minutes. But what you'll get is these policies have been put in place for your safety. Right now, you can go to Kroger, you can go to White Castle, you can go to Pizza Inn, you can go anywhere in this city or this country. And if you're going to pay, right, what is standing between you and the clerk? A shield. New York Times published a paper. New York Times, this is not the paper of, of the Republican Party, okay, or Looney Tunes from, from Eastern Kentucky, okay? Uh, none of them, right? Uh, they are not Kentucky Wildcat fans, is what I'm trying to say. Um, they have shown that those coverings actually help spread the virus. Why? Because when you breathe on that, which is what you're doing, the next person comes along and now they're breathing on it. All it takes is one person with it. Okay. Now, I'm glad that the clerk there, they're working hard and I'm grateful for all of that. I really am. Okay? So this isn't me being that guy. What I'm saying is what matters most to us is the sense of security. We did that here. When COVID hit and we finally opened up the first time, I said, there's two doors unlocked and I was very public. It is not because it keeps the virus from spreading, but because I want people to think it's not spreading. And you remember early on, we kept both doors open. Was that going to stop the spread? No, because if you have it, you're not going to spread it from the door. You're going to spread it in your pew. <laughs> well, you know, but we need to feel safe. Is there anything more important in this society than that? Think about it. How much of your life is wrapped in a cocoon? Now go to a major college right now. What's the number one thing the professors want to give you? Safety, not information. Not to prepare you for a career, but to make you safe in this cocoon. So if a student says to a professor administration, I don't feel safe here, that's a fireable offense. There's nothing more important to an American than self-security. I mean, just look at everything we're doing with COVID right now. Some of it good, some of it uh, maybe may too much. I'll, I'll let you decide. Now, I know what you're thinking is, what does this have to do with the Gnostics? It has everything to do with the Gnostics. The Gnostics begin with the self. It's self-discovery. We'll get to the dualism next week and, and how, how all that works. But the, the short end of it is they believe that there is enough of the divine inside of you that if you could dig deep inside of yourself, what comes out is the gnosis, this enlightened self. This is exactly the language you'll hear on Oprah if you turn her on. By the way, you don't have to go to Oprah. You could probably go to your Sunday school class. You'll hear the same thing. Can I prove it to you? We open our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20 to 21. And the teacher asks, 
What do you think this text means? The answer, the first answer, and the third and the fifth and the tenth is going to be this. I feel X, Y, and Z. And without knowing, you'd have bought into a Gnostic heresy. What matters is not how you feel that the text means. What matters is what, did, what did, does the text mean if you had never lived to begin with? MacArthur likes to say, ask yourself, what did the text mean before you were born? <laughs> I think that's helpful. Take your experience, not that that's not important, but take your experience, your insights, your feelings out of the, the, the interpretation and just try to have an honest conversation. What, what does this mean? All right. You remember whenever President Obama, uh, he, he appointed two Supreme Court justices. You remember what he said the number one qualification to him as Supreme Court justice was? Empathy. That's Gnosticism. It's the self. Well, let me bring it home and then, then we'll be done. Um, this is a recent article by Trevin Wax. Um, uh, Trevin Wax and I graduated from Southern at the same time. And uh, he has since gone on PhD stuff. He, uh, if, if you do Gospel Project for Sunday School, I know our kids do. Uh, he was one of the earliest editors of that. You would have seen his name. He's written a lot of books. You read anything he writes. He even wrote a fiction book that was pretty good. I interviewed him on my website about his fiction book. It's really, really fascinating stuff. It's a real short book, not complicated, uh, really good. He, li he likes his contrast between, you know, um, cold and hot, black and white. He really likes his contrast. You don't care about that. He wrote an article recently called The Main Reason Church Attendance is Slipping. Well, I was interested in that. Let me read a little bit from you. He's, he's commenting on, on a book. For more than a generation now, we've been undergoing a massive shift in how we understand the role of religion in the place of the church. The traditional perspective saw religion as a communal, solidary project. According to this model, quote, the way people, institutions, and traditions know what is good is through some combination of revelation and received teachings, tradition, mediated through reason and interpretive commentary, right? So even though we Baptists, we, we believe the Bible only, we add to that, look, there are faithful Christians who've come before us who said, this is what the text means. And we don't disregard their interpretation. Some are better than others, but God has given us 2,000 years of interpreting the same book. I think we should listen to what it is they have to say. That's a traditional way of building a, a faith tradition, right? We, we understand this. In the end, he, he goes, religion's role in society is to be, quote, an authoritative carrier of a tradition. To put it another way, one seeks to be faithful to an authentic, authoritative core of revealed truth. The goal is to receive the truth and adapt your life to an authentic tradition, right? You get this, right? You come to Jesus, you change. Jesus don't need to change. You need to change. So when you come to this tradition, you come to this faith, we understand that with faith comes transformation. And you and I must conform to that standard. And that standard we call Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the way it, it, we always understand it. In more recent years, he writes, religion has moved from being a communal solidarity project to a personal identity accessory. According to this model, the purpose of religion is not to promote right living grounded in good beliefs, but to offer practices and techniques that promote coping with life and making of good choices. The role of religion then is not to be an authoritative carrier of, of a tradition, but an optional lifestyle uh, acrimant. In other words, your quest for personal authenticity is at the center, 
and religion is to adapt in ways that prove helpful to your journey. The focus isn't on your adherence to an authentic core of revealed truth, but on religion's helpfulness in your quest to be authentic in your development of personal identity. Isn't this sounding familiar as you've interacted with people? They come in and out of the church. One more paragraph. What happens to the church when this model of personal identity accessory becomes prevalent? And then he quotes the, the guy he's been interacting with. Congregations are no longer centers of local community life, but rather more like supportive associational resources, aiding members in pursuing their authentic life concerns, coping with life, and making good choices. So here's the thing. The point isn't you come to church to conform to a broader view of the world. You come to church to have a pick-me-up. You ever heard that? I had a guy say, you know what? I go to church to to feel good about myself. (laughs) And you've never heard of the gospel. You've never heard it. Can I introduce you to a guy named Jesus who hurt a lot of feelings in in his three-and-a-half-year ministry? Um, But that's what we think. And so imagine if the preacher has the audacity to say something that offends you. How do you respond? With repentance? With seeking deeper truth? Or going to the next place that won't do that? Weekly, I have conversations with people who they bounce from one place to another because can you believe what he said? Yeah, because he is self-absorbed too, like you. And by the way, this is in Jeremiah. He says, let me tell you what's really happened. The, the prophets prophesy falsely. The priests teach wrongly. Here's the key. My people love it so. And what happens is, We create congregations, we create communities that are communities of self-absorbed individuals, and we only hire those who conform to our worldview rather than conform to what the Bible actually says. And that's the mess of the local church right now. That's Gnosticism. It's Gnosticism. See, what the Gnostics did was when they would come into the church with their ideas, and they find no one wants to go along with this, and they also had a problem with, with the Lord's Supper because it's, it's flesh. We'll get to that. And they would go off and start their own church. But then they would send people back in. And, and they found it was easy to corrupt believers if you sold them something that was natural. You fed their indulgence. And it almost destroyed the church. And it shows up in the New Testament. We'll have more to say about it next week. So remember that in Gnosticism, the highest value in the self is the self and self-discovery. That leads to happiness. I'm sorry, wrong word. Salvation. You see, Gnostics use the word salvation. We use the word happiness, but they mean the same thing. Yeah, because salvation is too rigid. Salvation is too religious. Happiness. That will sell. Don't you want to be happy? That's the key. The Bible is never interested in your happiness only interested in your holiness. But here's the little secret. You want secret knowledge? Here it is. You pursue Christ and grow in holiness. The joy of the gospel will come as a result. But you got to get the holiness first. If you don't believe me, compare a holy marriage with an unholy one. Tell me who's happier. It's not a secret. All right, I've talked enough. Anything you guys want to add? Danny, you got anything? <laughs>